In recent weeks, we have been opening up some of the Old Testament prophecies that concern the Lord Jesus Christ. The Hebrew Scriptures, the bulk of the Bible, were written um, across a span of years, but at least 400 years before Jesus going back from there. And uh, dotted throughout them in all kinds of ways. There are many, many ways that Jesus is described and alluded to and anticipated before he actually came. It's quite a remarkable thing. And I've been wanting to show you different facets of his reality and greatness. And last week we began opening up this particular psalm, Psalm 110, which as I told you has been the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. I believe it's the most quoted portion of the Old Testament that appears in the New Testament because a number of its verses resonated powerfully with New Testament authors in describing something of the coming Messiah. And so I want to reread the psalm, but we're going to focus in on just one verse today. It begins like this, and it's a psalm of David. He says, the Lord, this is Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, so he's picturing two people speaking, the living God, the Father of all things, speaking to someone he calls his Lord, who is also his descendant. And this is the mystery of this verse, which we were explaining last week, that there would be a divine son who would come. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs. Over the wide earth, he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And I'm particularly interested in the fourth verse where David writes that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What we're trying to do is show something of the extraordinary uniqueness of Jesus through the lens of these prophecies, all of which show us a different facet of his nature and being, what they anticipated Uh, would be true of the coming Savior. And obviously, this is hugely important for us to think about because uniquely among world religions, Christianity hangs or falls on what you make of one person and what you make of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas you you can explore other religions as ideologies or doctrines or sets of doctrines and you can, you can sort of analyze them from the idea, from the perspective of ideas. That's not true with Christianity. Of course, it has many truths and many doctrines and ideas that are embedded in it, but it all centers around a single person, upon the person of Jesus. There is nothing more important than for us to look at him, to consider him, to think about him, to be confronted by him, which means that, really, for you, to decide what you think about Jesus is the sum of it all. It's really the thing which distinguishes one person from another, which makes a person a Christian or not, is how you respond to and what you think about him, this man. And the reasons for his uniqueness are really beyond just, there's so many that we could mention, but I want to just mention a few as we get into this theme. One is that there's only one man in history that I can think of who's been so accurately and specifically described in prophecy, before his coming. And Jesus 
As you read your Old Testament, you can see him on the pages in all kinds of ways, but sometimes in most clear prophetic predictions of his coming and what he would do, where he would be born, and what his life would be about and his purpose and his achievements. And that makes Jesus very unique because I, I don't know of anyone else like that in history. I don't know of other religions that even claim that, not with the degree and the specificity and the accuracy that we can see about Jesus in the pages of the Bible. He's the only man also, another thing about him, is the only man that I can think of who, who splits the world based on what you make of him and him alone. I think Jesus was very self-conscious about this in his teaching. He understood that in many ways he, he was the dividing line in history. He was the crease in history, the fold, the turning point, the pivot. And that what you make of him is the most important thing about you. And here's another thing. He's the only man who commands such devotion and adoration from people. There are many, many people, leaders and, and examples of, of people who have commanded a following. Or people who have managed to put their ideas into others and, and, and change the world in some way. But I can't think of anybody who has commanded such devotion and adoration around himself as Jesus has. And that ought to be a provocation to every one of us. It's a provocation to us who are Christians to consider again our own faith and understand what he is worthy of. Is a provocation to you, of course, if you are not a Christian because you, cannot, you just cannot ignore this, this man who lived and the things he did. It's not really possible. And to do so makes you a poorer person, I believe. So the question I just want to ask as we begin is, what is it about Jesus that calls for such adoration and love from people? And even worship. What is it about him that we treasure? And part of the answer is actually wrapped up in this line, believe it or not, where David says that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And of course, it's, there's some mystery in there that we need to unfold and understand what David was seeing and what was so strange about what he was seeing. But within it, we begin to unfold why Jesus is so special, why he's so unique and so important to us. I want to show you a few aspects of what David is saying here about Jesus as a coming priest. <clears throat> and I want to speak to you about his power and his permanence and his purity. Three different things which are explained to us actually in Hebrews 7. So we're going to turn there. That speak, that reference this verse in, in, in Psalm 110. So let's get into this. It says that you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I want us to think first of all about Christ and his power as this coming priest. And what I... What that means. You see, one of the reasons that um, Jesus is so loved and so demands so much affection and adoration from, from people is because you discover in him everything that you need. When you find Jesus, when you're introduced to him, and as you begin to know him and deepen your knowledge of him, you discover that in him 
your heart's desires are met, that he is everything you need. You could think of it a little bit like this. As you grow older, you find that a number of your aspects of your health can begin to deteriorate. And it's different for different people. Some people can be as strong as an ox until one day they just die. But for many of us, we'll experience the slow deterioration of health. You might have a little bit of arthritis. You might have the buildup of furring of the arteries. And then you might have blood pressure. I'm sure even now as I'm speaking, your blood pressure is rising, isn't it? You, you anticipate these things. And you can have experience of deterioration of your mind and memory. And all these kinds of things can, can layer up one on top of another. And so it's not uncommon for somebody who's old. Um, what's old? Let's not cause anybody offense. I think maybe let's say someone in their, in their 80s, right? It's not uncommon for somebody who's old to be taking a cocktail of drugs in the morning or in the evening, and so you have a whole array of different colored pills that are taken in order to combat each of these deteriorations in their health. But imagine for a moment that it was possible to create a drug that somehow eliminated the need for all of those medicines, because maybe a drug that could somehow reverse the aging process, that could stimulate your body to heal itself, to deal with all these things separately, and so experience the renewal of, of youth and the elixir of life. Now, what would that drug be worth to you? It would be, be worth pretty much everything you own, wouldn't it? I think people would go to war for it. It would be certainly the most treasured commodity that we have on the face of the planet, to have this thing, to possess it, to, to consume it. And so, in, that, in a similar way, when, you see, in Christ, what we discover is that we have in one person a man who comes to us and meets us on so many different points of need in our hearts. He is so many things to us. He is a friend. He is a brother. He's a savior. He's, he's all kinds of things that the scriptures show us to, him to be to us. But one of the most clear things that the Bible shows us about him is that he occupies three distinct offices. That he was predicted to be a coming prophet. And I, I began to explain to you one of the prophecies about that a few weeks back, that he would be a prophet who would reveal God to us, who would show us who God is. And of course, we said how Jesus uniquely and perfectly displayed who God is because he was God in human flesh. He was the ultimate prophet. He could never be surpassed in that particular role. But then he also came to us, and this is what we were thinking about last week, to be a king. Another role, another office of that he, he holds in himself, that he would be a king who would rule and reign over his kingdom. And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And he described it as something invisible. And yet we see it growing, don't we? Year on year. And over the rolling centuries, you see the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ as king being established on this earth. And everything that the Bible said about him is coming true. He's a king who's ruling and reigning. And exercises more influence than anyone who has ever lived. That is beyond question. These things ought to rattle us to think about him. He came, he's a prophet, he's a king, and here's this third dimension, the third office which he would hold in himself would, is that he would be a priest. Now, this is very odd to find the various things drawn together in one person, like the analogy of the drug that I was trying to describe to you. If you'll permit me a, um, a sports analogy, sports are not my thing, so I'm liable to make mistakes at this point. But as I understand it, if you take any division within 
boxing, a weight division. Then let's say you take the heavyweights. There are a number of different belts that can be won within a heavyweight category. And they're awarded by different organizations. And it's possible that you can sort of combine the belts if you were to win bouts with all the right people and, and hold them all at the same time. But this is very rare, and it's not a typical thing to happen, largely because of contract negotiations and the breakdown of all those kinds of things, because it's not in no one's interest, really, to have a superhero. But here we have in Jesus somebody who, who takes all the belts upon himself, the one man who could occupy in himself and had broad enough shoulders to carry the office of being the prophet who would, who would show us God, the king who would rule our hearts. And also now, this third thing, the priest. Another analogy you could think of is that um, in, a, in a healthy state, you have the separation of powers, don't you? You have your executive, the government. You have your legislative, who, who write new laws. And then you have the judiciary, who interpret laws. And then, hopefully as well, you have an independent media who hold the powers to account so that you have the healthy balance and accountability because too much power concentrated in one, in one, in one system or in one organization or, or, God forbid, in one person, as you see in some states, is a dangerous thing because of the corruption of the human heart and the tendency that, it, that, that follows in terms of, in terms of oppression and uh, corruption and all these kinds of things. But what we're seeing, and of course this was true, by the way, in ancient Israel as well, you had the king, then you had the priests who knew the law and interpreted the law and, and helped the rule of law bleed its way into the life of the community. And then you had the prophets who were kind of like these, a little bit like the modern equivalent being the media who spoke truth to power, who said this is what we want to be and this is what's important to us and you are not fulfilling these roles. So you had all these swirling different power groups but suddenly we discover that what the prophets are saying about Jesus is that he would be the one who drew all these things together in himself. There would be this great power in this one man. Now, the significance of that is shown us, strangely enough, in this phrase, that he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. I don't know that I've ever heard a, a preacher preach on this, so... You should at least pat me on the back for being brave. But here we go. I'm not sure that this made any sense to David's contemporaries when they read this. What was David talking about? And the reason is because Melchizedek is a very little understood figure who appears just once, many, many, many years before, early in the Bible in Genesis 14. He's a little bit like uh, Tom Bombadil. A few of you know who Tom Bombadil is. Do you know who Tom Bombadil is? A few of you, okay. Very few of you, actually. I saw only one nod. Um, um, it's because you haven't read The Lord of the Rings, okay? You've maybe watched the films, extraordinary films, the great epic saga of the ring. But if you read the books and they reward reading, you discover that there's this weird character who appears in the first hundred pages, for Tom Bombadil, who's kind of a forest wizard slash god figure who rescues the hobbits. But he appears out of nowhere, he disappears into nowhere, and he occupies a lot of pages, and then he's 
He's only ever mentioned once again in, in the whole, the massive trilogy of the Lord of the Rings. And he seems to bear no relation to the plot whatsoever. And you think, what was Tolkien doing? It made no sense. So when Peter Jackson came to make the film, he just cut Tom Bombadil out altogether. It was like, well, we don't need that. Like, it's understandable. Just confuse the viewers. And of course, when you're reading the Bible, you, you, you encounter things that are puzzling. Things that I don't think we'll ever fully understand until we, we reach heaven so we can actually ask God or ask the people who we encountered there in the pages. What, what were you doing? And Melchizedek is one of those guys. He's kind of the Tom Bombadil of the Bible. Because he appears in Genesis 14 as this bizarre character. But the more you understand what is said about him in a few short verses, the more extraordinary he appears. And David had an insight into this that no one else saw and wrote it for us in just this one line that's pregnant with meaning about the coming of Jesus and what his role would be as priest. Turn to Hebrews 7, and I'll just show you a few things about him. Abraham had just been off to war. The battle of the five versus the four kings. And he'd rescued his, his, uh, his relative Lot from being a captive. And he defeated these kings, and he was on his way back home. And on his way back home, he passes past the little village town and uh, as he passes he's met by the ruler of that town a man called Melchizedek and he gives Melchizedek a portion of the the tithe of their plunder he gives him a tenth of all the treasure that they've just taken from from war and Melchizedek comes out with bread and wine and blesses Abraham that's the story that's the long and short of it and Hebrews explains it to us a little bit more he says for this Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. <clears throat> he is first, by uh, translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. Salem being related to the word shalom. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. And then you stop and you think about what he's saying. Here's a man. Now, just bear in mind, this is, before, this is before any of the Old Testament religion really existed in any sense that we understand. All, there were no Jews, there were no Hebrews, there was just Abraham and Sarah, that was it. There was no land there was no religion, there was no religious cultus, there was no temple, there was none of that. There was just Abraham and Sarah, a wandering couple with their possessions and their household. And they bump into this guy Melchizedek. And then you realize he's, he's unique, he's a king priest. Because he's, he's the ruler of his little town, it's probably just maybe a few thousand people, not big. But he's the king of the town, because everyone in those days was king if they were ruled a town. But he's also the pri a priest. He's called the king of Salem, which maybe you've made the connection. It's actually Jerusalem. But it's Jerusalem before Jerusalem was Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem, just an isolated middle of nowhere town in the Middle East, which long before anyone considered it to be anything important. So here's a king priest occupying a seat of authority in a place that we now know is Jerusalem. His name and the Hebrew breakdown of the word Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And he's also uniquely a priest of what it says in Genesis 14, of the most high God. 
the one true God, in other words. And you've got to think, this is living at a time when people worshipped all kinds of things. They worshipped the moon and the sun. They worshipped all kinds of weird gods that no longer are worshipped. But Melchizedek, uniquely and for no apparent reason, worships the God that we worship. The same God Abraham worshipped. And he comes with this bread and this wine as this figure who Abraham is so impressed by that he pays reverence to and offers him a tenth of all his things. And so the Hebrews author says that resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. In other words, there's this strange character who appears out of nowhere in Genesis and he, he looks a lot like Jesus. The more you think about him and his role and what he is and what he does, he's a lot like Jesus. And such is the simplicity of our faith that there in this one man are brought together power and rule and authority and kingship but also his priestly office. Friends, he resembles Christ to us and this is the power of Christ as priest. That everything you need and desire you found in one man. Whereas all those things were fragmented across different organizations and systems and that, all of them are brought together again in Jesus who's a priest after the order of Melchizedek because he, like Melchizedek, exercise the same kind of authority and rule. Here's the second thing about him. Christ's priesthood is permanent. He's a priest, David says, forever. And remember, we're asking this question. Why does Jesus receive such devotion from men? Why is he worthy of it? And I want you to ask yourself the question, what does it mean to call Jesus a priest? Why was you know, most of the prophecies about Jesus and his coming were about him being a king, about him being a Messiah, an anointed one, a king who would rule the nation. There's very few that speak about him as a priest. And yet, and yet, it means an enormous amount to us. And ask yourself the question, why? And the answer is not that hard to find. It's because a priest is someone who deals with our sin. We have this great problem, don't we? That when we look at our own lives our consciences bear witness to the fact that we are flawed people. Not just your conscience, but also facts bear witness to that. And if you think hard enough about it, you realize that you do not have a leg to stand on to plead your case before a holy God who has created us. I think Job expresses this so well. Remember the story of Job? Again, an ancient man who lived long before Judaism was even a thing. But he has a relationship with God. And he experiences profound suffering. And in that suffering, he agonizes over the question of whether what he he is to say to God how he is to plead his case. He considers himself to be a righteous man, but yet he doesn't know how he, can, how he can even make a case to God that he shouldn't suffer in this way. And the way he puts it is so interesting. He says, <clears throat> in Job 9, he says, if one wished to contend with him, that's with God, if you, if you wanted to have an argument with him, he says, you couldn't answer him once in a thousand times. It says no matter, in other words, if God asked you a thousand questions about yourself, 
Not once in a thousand times could you provide a satisfactory answer to the God who knows you and sees you and sees through you and understands you better than you understand yourself. And Job knew that. He could be honest with himself. And then he talks about a longing. He says about God that he's not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. You know, if God was just a man like you or I, we could stand together and we could argue this out. And I could defend myself and we could have a debate. But he says, there is no mediator between us who might lay his hand on both of us. And Job was articulating the basic human need that you recognize that there's a God over you. But you do not know how to make your case to that God. If you do not have a mediator. Some years ago, I was um, very unjustly uh, brought to court because I had been, I was only just passed my driving test and I was reversing my car in a, in a garage, a petrol station. And as I reversed, uh, at very slow p- pace, I told, I told anyway, that was my testimony, um, I, uh, <laughs> it's also the truth, I, um, I reversed into another car. And um, I wasn't looking properly. I reversed into another car. They, the couple who were in the car got out. They looked around the car. We looked at the damage. Just a little cracked light. And um, we exchanged details. And I thought, well, that's fine. They'll just make a claim. It'll be dealt with. And then I hear from my insurance company a few weeks later that they had uh, made a claim for personal injury, which was going to obviously run to the order of tens of thousands of pounds if they were to be granted the compensation. And uh, everything in me was crying for justice in that moment because you feel the unfairness of the, si- of the system, don't you, and of the situation. I was willing to admit that I'd made a mistake and cracked their front light. I was not willing to admit that I'd hurt them. And so we went to court over it, and the insurance company paid for um, a defense case. And I arrived at the courtroom, and on the morning when we turned up, my wife was with me. We stood on the steps outside where we were instructed to wait. And a man approached us, and he was a barrister, a lawyer, who would represent me in the courtroom. And I'd never met the man, but I felt a profound sense of assurance when he walked up to us. He carried a massive A4 binder under his arm. <laughs> and all of it was related to this small incident in a petrol station. I couldn't believe it. And he'd read it, and he'd bookmarked it all the way through. And I, I, was, I started talking with him. I said, how do you manage it? He'd only received it the night before, which is how barristers roll. I mean, they just go from one case to another often. And he'd been through it carefully, and he'd cross-reference, and he'd look for all kinds of details to make his case. And he was probably in his uh, 50s or so, and he, he, was, he was very warm, and I was complimentary of the effort he'd put in. And he said how when he was younger, he was able to just basically memorize the thing and knew where to go, but he'd had to put the work in. But I was appreciative of him and of his experience because what happened when we sat in that courtroom, it was a small room, the judge at one end and a large table, and we sat opposite with our various lawyers and and us as couples sat across the table from one another. When the time came for the testimony, my lawyer, I like to say that, my lawyer, (laughs) it's a very... It's a very American way of speaking, isn't it? Um, my lawyer, um, he, he ripped them to shreds. He, um, he, he, he cross-examined them. He poked holes in their testimony. He showed where all the lies were. 
He, he questioned the evidence. He did everything necessary to show to the point where they were so angry they were practically spitting and swearing in the room, which is never a good sign, is it? And of course, it was wonderful because at the end of the day, um, we won. And my simple point is not that I'm a, a great driver because I don't claim that, but rather that I was very relieved to have this man be a mediator, an advocate, the word is, to represent me in that moment. And he asked the question, what does it mean then for Jesus to be called our mediator, our priest, our advocate, which is what a priest is. It's their primary role is to be a mediator between you and God, to stand in the middle between two parties and mediate a deal. It's not that, you must understand, it's not that Jesus and the Father are somehow opposed here. That God, as it were, has his back turned to you and is angrily and gruffly demanding justice and Jesus is sort of pleading as the son and trying to beg him to change his mind. It's not the picture the Bible tells us at all because the Bible says that the father sent the son into the world to save the world because of his love for the world. It's very explicit on this. And nor, nor does the Bible tell us that Christ as mediator is, is almost like a trickster. You know how some lawyers like to, like to play tricks to, to gain the system. You may have heard this week how um, David Beckham was, was driving, I think, 59 miles per hour in a 40 miles per hour zone. And he was caught and uh, charged. But he hired a lawyer whose nickname was Mr. Loophole. And somehow this guy always finds a loophole. And he got off scot-free as a result. And uh, I don't have his number if you need, but um, <laughs> I'm sure you can Google. Jesus, Jesus is not these things. This is not what the Bible shows us. But what it does show us is his his unbelievable power and standing and righteousness as our priest. There's a precious verses in, in 1 John 2 where he talks about his role as our mediator. He says, John says this, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, keep this in mind, first of all, that the Christian life is, is meant to be a life in which we are flaying, slaying, killing our sin. Turning away from it, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, wanting purity, striving after it, calling on the power of God that we would live clean lives. That is the Christian life. If you have no hunger or desire for purity, then you are not a Christian. It is a resonating thing in the heart of every Christian. Even if you battle, even if you pulled away, you want to be like Jesus. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, a mediator, a lawyer almost. Jesus Christ the righteous. He says he, he is the propitiation or the sacrifice of atonement for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus occupies this this strange double role. He's both the advocate and the sacrifice, the atonement, the price that was paid for the sin in himself. And so in Hebrews 7, when he's describing, when he's referencing this, this verse about Melchizedek, he picks up on this again. In verse 23, he says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death. This is verse 23 again prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently 
because he continues forever. In other words, if you'd lived under the Old Testament law where they had the temple and they had hundreds and even thousands of priests and they had unbelievable number of animals that were slaughtered and all this kind of stuff, it was very messy, it was very smelly, there was lots of fire and smoke and all that kind of stuff going on every single day. And the priests were very flawed men who, just like us, and they died, and they had to be replaced. And, and you'd only have so much confidence in the system. And the author to the Hebrews is saying, now listen, all of that was swept aside. And in its place, one man has stood and will continue to stand for all time. The one priest who is permanent, who will never die, and who will continue in his role. And then he rounds it off in this way. He says, consequently... Verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Which is to say, Jesus can never and will never fail you when you trust in him. All of that is packed into that verse in Psalm 110. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A priest forever. This means that a Christian should have the deepest sense of confidence. You should have the deepest sense of confidence that Christ has you. That nothing you can do can separate you from him. And that he will continue to make intercession for you. And he's competent at his job. And it's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the strength of the one you put your faith in. It's about his ability. So that whatever weakness you feel in yourself, that, that's really beside the point. If you're looking to Jesus to be your mediator, you're looking to the right man. You're looking to the one who stands there and never fails in his role. He never wavers. He never hesitates. He always makes intercession for you. That's what he's telling us. Because he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here's the last thing about him. It's his purity as priest. One of the great strains of modern life is our awareness of the deep flaws that we see in our leaders all around us. Even just over the past few weeks, we've been really conscious of this because it's been in the news, hasn't it? Just one story after another. On this side, in our own country, one of our most prominent leaders, whose private life seems to be an absolute wreck, and yet he seems to be positioning himself for greater power in public life. And yet I cannot help but think that the private life of a person speaks volumes about their competence, and their trustworthiness, and their faithfulness, and their likelihood that they will follow through on their commitments in public. The two things cannot be so easily separated. And of course, also splash across our screens the stories about this, this individual who's been nominated to the Supreme Court in the USA and the accusations that are raised up against him. And true or not, we're conscious that 
whether it's him or someone else, there's always mud that can be flung because people are flawed and they never can quite carry the weight of the offices which they are supposed to hold. Every year, even in the church, we hear new scandals. Churches of the same kind of flavor and kind as ours. We hear scandals of pastors who failed in horrible ways. And all this just grinds us down, doesn't it? It tells you that you can't really trust leaders. It erodes that trust. You think, well, there's going to be something. There's going to be some reason they'll fail. And it also erodes your hope because if you can't, if you can't put your hope in a leader to bring you into a better situation, then what hope do you have? The world stands or falls based on the strength of its leadership, doesn't it? And yet all around us we see failed leaders or leaders who succeed for a while and then fail. It was true in ancient Israel. Much of the Old Testament is an honest account of the failings of man. King after king, we hear their stories. Some of them did well. Some of them did well for a season and then failed, and most of them did abysmally. Because their lives were so corrupted by desire. They were human, just like me and you. And the more power they had, the more ability they had to feed their desires. Because there were no obstructions. And the Bible shows us how tragically, when, a, when leaders keep falling into evil and into sin, the people go with them. There's an inevitable connection between leaders and people. It's true even of the priests. After Aaron was appointed the first priest in the old system, the law system, the temple system, after him were to come his two oldest sons. But God had to kill them because they, they failed straight away. When Jesus arrived on the scene, many, many years later, the priests in his, in his day were in the pocket of the Romans. And you read the tragedy of Jesus in his trials and how disrespectfully they treat him and speak to him and yet demand honor for themselves. Corrupt men in a corrupt system. And all of it just points to this truth that I think both Christians and the world can agree on. That religion is broken. Religion is totally broken. I know that sometimes when I've spoken to people who are not Christians who are thinking about the Christian faith, it can be one of the great objections that they raise. It's the problem of the church. And actually I don't find that a great problem because I find I want to agree with them immediately. Yes, the church is a very flawed thing and the people in it are flawed. Thankfully though, the Christian faith is not about the perfection of the church. It's about the perfection of our Savior and about the perfection of Jesus himself. And when the author to the Hebrews, in his extended meditation on this verse in Psalm 110, that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He brings it to a conclusion at the end of chapter 7, in Hebrews 7, verse 26. He says it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. If you can find me another man about whom 
you could say such things. I would call you a liar. No one has been holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens like Jesus. He is perfect. And so he goes on, he says, he has no need like those high priests, speaking of all the thousands of priests that were under the old system, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, which is what they all had to do. You know, you think about it, the priest is there to help you because of your, your sin, but he's got his own to deal with. It's like going into a court of law and discovering that your lawyer is also a criminal. And that was the problem of the old system. No one was perfect enough to be a mediator between you and God. But he says, this is the unique thing about Jesus. He didn't have to deal with his own sin before he could deal with yours. He says, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, he was the pure, perfect sacrifice. Nothing else was needed to satisfy God and to find justice. So as we close, I just want to ask you, these questions, are you, do you consider him worthy of your devotion and adoration? Can you think of anyone like Jesus? And can you stand before God without him? Can you stand before the living God without a priest like this to make it possible? to plead your case, to be your intercessor. If you are not a Christian, I understand that so much of this must seem confusing in many ways or foreign, but the basics of it are very simple. Your sin has to be dealt with somehow. Either you can deal with it before God on your own, or you can trust in Jesus and recognize that he has dealt with it. I prefer to choose the latter for myself. And that's what it means to become a Christian. It's saying, I, I want Jesus to help me. I want to trust in him. I want him to represent me. And he does. And he does it with perfect competence. And maybe you want to become a Christian tonight. Maybe you come to the position where you say, I think these things about Jesus are true. I recognize it. And I want, I want his influence in my life. I want his power in my life. And I want forgiveness. And so to become a Christian is as simple as saying to him, Lord, I'm a sinner. You're a savior. Please take me. Please have me. Please save me. But for those of us who are Christians, my great passion and the longing and the hope I have in in what we're seeking to do here, in the kind of church we're seeking to build, is that I want all of us to have our hearts revived continually with adoration and worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to look at him and experience that kind of life-dominating obsession that is true of people who have come to see that Jesus is who he is and his greatness and his worthiness. When I read the pages of the New Testament, I'm struck by the men who changed the world and those those early disciples, those couples and men and women, those married couples, and also those, those early, uh, early um, witnesses of the resurrection, all of them who, who had incredible devotion to Jesus that was in fact an obsession. They loved him with their whole heart, even unto death. 
And you read through the pages of history and the great heroes of our faith. And those who have sacrificed the most have been those who loved him the most. And friends, if you want to have a hope of, of dealing with sin in your life. Or of living a significant life in heaven's eyes. Then the only thing that we're called to do is to foster a deeper more powerful and significant love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The more you look at him, in other words, the more you are transformed and the more transforming power you exercise in the world around you. This is why we take our time to uncover these deep truths, to understand them, to stretch our minds, to comprehend Christ in all his dimensions. And even if we're just scratching at the surface, the Holy Spirit is going to enlighten some of this in our hearts as we grow in our knowledge of Christ in the days to come. Amen? Why don't we pray? Why don't we pray? I want to invite Luke to hand out the bread and the wine in a couple of moments and the band to come up. And we can just remain seated to begin with as we respond with communion. It's so significant, so pregnant with significance that just as Melchizedek came to Abraham from that little place called Salem and brought him bread and wine and then blessed him, So Jesus comes to us as our great high priest and offers us his body and his blood and blesses us with blessings we do not deserve, his favor and his acceptance, while he takes off us our sin and our unworthiness. So why don't we bow our hearts and our heads as we come to him now. And let's just speak of his goodness together and worship him in prayer. Jesus, we recognize that you are worthy. There are so many mysteries of the scriptures that we we do not see clearly, but we see clearly that you are great. And that you stand above history, you tower over history as the one great man. Perfect, pure, indestructible. Yet full of compassion for us. And self-sacrifice. And love for us as your people. Lord we want to come to you in a way that. We are able to bow our, our lives down to you. And say Lord have us. There's only you Lord. Who's worthy of. Of our whole being. Take hold of us Lord. Transform us, revive us by the power of your spirit. Make us more like you, Jesus, we pray. I pray for those, Lord, who are just wrestling with guilt and with frustration with themselves and agonizing over it and trying to deal with their sin themselves. I pray that they would see the weight of the truth that you're our great high priest, that The whole purpose of your role is that we can dump all of that stuff at your feet and have done with it. That we can be confident that you will not give us condemnation or judgment. That you'll give us grace. That you'll give us peace. That you'll give us mercy. Such is your decided love towards us. So sweep us up, Lord, in deeper adoration of you. The worthy one the Holy One. There's no one like you, Lord. Amen. Amen.